You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here in late February of 2023 with episode 437 of the Corbett Report podcast, Canada Criminalizes Dissent. Well, guys, looks like it's official. It is now absolutely illegal to participate in an unapproved political protest in Canada. After weeks of hearings and hours of witness testimony, an inquiry has found Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government made the right decision invoking the Emergencies Act during last winter's convoy protests, using the controversial powers for the first time in Canadian history. What began as a massive protest evolved into something entirely unprecedented. When the decision was made to invoke the act on February 14th, 2022, cabinet had reasonable grounds to believe that there existed a national emergency. If you've seen episode 434 of this podcast on Canada's Freedom Convoy Commission, you will know the importance of what we just witnessed there. For those who don't, I would of course wholeheartedly suggest that you do check out episode 434 or re-familiarize yourself with that episode. But for those who are completely lost, this is all circling around the events that took place in Canada last winter, specifically the Freedom Convoy that swept across Canada and into Ottawa in late January, early February of 2022, which resulted in Trudeau's Liberal government invoking the Emergencies Act to crack down on this lawful, unlawful, question mark, protest at that time. And I will point once again, as I did back in episode 434, to the Canadian government's own handy-dandy explainer on the Emergencies Act, which notes that the act can be used by the federal government in the event of a national emergency. Asterisk definition needed? Question mark. Uh, And does grant the Canadian government extraordinary powers, including the power to regulate and prohibit public assembly, the power to regulate the use of specified property, to designate and secure places where blockades are to be prohibited, to direct persons to render essential services to relieve the impacts of blockades, uh, to direct specified financial institutions to render essential services or prohibit the use of property for certain circumstance, in certain circumstances, and to impose fines or imprison anyone con- contravening any of the measures declared under the public order emergency. But The gigantic asterisk on that entire explainer from the Canadian government is, of course, not only is this a Canadian government interpretation of the Emergencies Act, it is specifically an interpretation that was updated, if you scroll to the bottom of that page, on February 25th, 2022, i.e. after the Emergencies Act had been invoked. So you will note that all of the the measures that they are talking about in that explainer are surrounding the idea of blockades, or rendering service to people um, who are using their property for the purpose of blockades, etc., etc., which, if you go and read the actual Emergencies Act itself, you will note this is not an act that is specifically about blockades. Uh, That is 
simply one particular manifestation of a particular sort of public order emergency that was envisioned under the act, but it was certainly not a core part of the document. Why are they highlighting that in this Canadian government explainer? Because they are trying to justify what they had at that time just done in the name of stopping the blockades. Yeah, that's it. That's what this was all about. Anyway, I will, as I did in episode 434, link you to the actual Emergencies Act, so you do not have to take the Canadian government's word for what is in the Act. You can go read it for yourself, because you are an intelligent, capable, adult human being. But, having said that, the Act also contains a provision that requires the government to hold an inquiry and table a report to each House of Parliament within 360 days after expiration or revocation of the Declaration of Emergency. So you will also recall, again, if you did see episode 434, that I presented many different clips from that Commission of Inquiry, uh, government officials being examined or and or police officials, others talking at that inquiry, some very important uh, moments from the inquiry, and of course the entire proceedings of that, or at least the public hearings of that inquiry, are available online, all of which was linked up in the episode 434 show notes. And you will also remember that I had the chance to talk to Rob Kittrich and Hadam Keir, who were at the inquiry, taking part in the proceedings, examining witnesses uh, as representatives of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. So that interview, of course, is also in the Corporate Report archives. But yes, exactly as specified in the Emergencies Act itself, there was a public inquiry that took place uh, last fall and which has, as you have just seen from the opening clip, finally delivered its final report on the public order emergency. Today I am uh, very pleased to announce that the report of the Public Order Commission, Public Order Emergency Commission, has been submitted to Parliament it will soon be available on uh, the Commission's website. After careful reflection, I have concluded that the very high threshold required for the invocation of the Act was met. In particular, for reasons that I discuss in detail in the report, I have concluded that when the decision was made to invoke the Act on February 14, 2022, Cabinet had reasonable grounds to believe that there existed a national emergency arising from threats to the security of Canada that necessitated the taking of special temporary measures. I do not come to this conclusion easily, as I do not consider the factual basis for it to be overwhelming. Reasonable and informed people could reach a different conclusion than the one I have arrived at. The Parliament that passed the Emergencies Act in 1988 went to great lengths to ensure that its use would be subject to robust accountability and public scrutiny. I hope that this inquiry and my report have contributed to achieving this. Merci beaucoup. Thank you. Enjoy the report. Enjoy the report. Yeah. Thank you, Commissioner. 
Um, for those not in the know, that was Paul Rouleau, the judge who was appointed to commission the inquiry itself, the Public Order Emergency Commission. And yes, the final report is now available for your perusal, your reading enjoyment. It's a light couple thousand pages, and it was just released, uh, well, less than a week ago at this point. So you'll forgive me for not having read every single word of every single volume, but at any rate, it is there on the Public Order Emergency Commission website, publicorderemergencycommission.ca. Just click on Final Report and you'll get the Final Report, which consists of Volume 1, an overview, which contains both an executive summary and a consolidated list of recommendations. So the executive summary is over 270 pages. <laughs> then Volume 2, the Analysis Part 1. Volume 3, Analysis Part 2, which is a review and analysis of the evidence that was uh, presented and considered. Uh, as well uh, has as well has his recommendations. Good job, guys. Basic proofreading in the <laughs> explanatory text of the final report. Completely missing. Anyway, Volume 4, Process and Appendices, includes an explanation of how the Commission conducted its work, as well as 36 appendices uh, containing rules, decisions, legislation, and other materials. And Volume 5, Policy Papers, contains 17 previously published commissioned papers from academic experts. It's got the webcast of that public statement that we just witnessed, etc. So the information is there on the website, and when you click through, as I say, I certainly have not read this full report, but I have had time to at least peruse Volume 1 and note some of the highlights or lowlights of this report of the public inquiry into the 2022 public order emergency. Uh, there is a lot, and if you just go through and to the table of contents, you can see all of the various different chapters, headings, um, things that are considered in this executive summary of the report. But let's cut to the chase. Uh, we have, for example, down in uh, section 21, there's just a sort of narrative overview of the development of the Freedom Convoy and what it was about and how it happened, in which Judge Rouleau says that, I, as I describe in section 6 and 7, the origins of the protests in January and February 2022 can be traced to populist movements that predate the COVID-19 pandemic and revealed a growing distrust in government by certain segments of the population. Government responses to COVID-19 exacerbated this pre-existing dynamic. The public health measures imposed and the protests they generated provided opportunities for those with broader grievances about economic status, government policy, social change, and Western alienation to air these concerns. How dare they? It is not my role to analyze the efficacy of any government or business response to COVID-19. Heaven forfend. I accept that restrictions were imposed to reduce the spread of a novel virus and in do so, doing so, reduce deaths and ease the burden on the healthcare system. In hindsight, some of these measures may ultimately prove to be ineffective, misguided, or confusing, but they were implemented in an unprecedented time and in response to an unprecedented public health crisis, says the medical doctor. Oh no, the judge, who wisely stewarded over this process. Anyway, take that for what it's worth. Blah, blah, blah. It was an emergency, guys. Honest. To be fair, he gives some credit to the protesters who he seemed to be dismissing otherwise uh, in that preamble. He says that uh, while it's important to recognize the presence of controversial and extreme elements at the protests, it should not detract from my findings that many, and perhaps most of the protesters, sought to engage in legitimate and lawful protests. Their participation alone does not mean that they supported or condoned the conduct of extreme or fringe participants. So, of course, Judge Rulo gets to be the arbiter of who was extreme or fringe and who wasn't, and look into the hearts and minds of men and 
make rulings on that. Well, maybe that's just the nature of the process that we're engaged in in this type of inquiry, right? So um, moving along, uh, there's plenty of very interesting passages here. I'll point you to um, this one, which I think presents a pretty interesting aspect of legal jurisprudence as well as philosophy. Um, it is commonly assumed or asserted that tensions and trade-offs between order and freedom are a distinctive problem of emergencies and emergency powers. In fact, they are not. The fundamental and inevitable tension between order and freedom is a constant. It is simply more visible and more stark in a time of emergency. In times of emergency, however, freedoms that are usually unconstrained may suddenly be curtailed. This puts a spotlight on the clash of values. Well, I don't disagree with that, at least that paragraph, and I think there are some very, very interesting and deep concepts to be explored there. Rest assured, I will be exploring them in very short order. I do plan on writing a newsletter this coming weekend that addresses those types of top topics in the context of this report, but let's get to the money shot that we're all waiting for here. Of course, the conclusion. Many have called the events of January and February 2022 exceptional. I think that is an, that is an apt description. There was much about that period that was, if not wholly unprecedented, then at the very least extraordinary. One exceptional event, and the focus of this inquiry, was the use of the Emergencies Act for the first time in its 35-year history. It is unsurprising that the Emergencies Act had never been used until now. It is exceptional legislation, meant for exceptional times. It can only be invoked when a multi-layered series of preconditions are satisfied. Its invocation triggers a series of review, oversight, and accountability mechanisms that serve as a check against governments using the act when they should not, and as a means to restrain overreach. The cumulative effect of these preconditions and mechanisms is that resort to the Emergencies Act will be rare. I have concluded that in this case, the very high threshold for invocation was met. I have done so with reluctance. The state should generally be able to respond to circumstances of urgency without the use of emergency powers. It's only in rare instances when the state cannot otherwise fulfill its fundamental obligation to ensure the safety and security of people and property that resort to emergency measures will be found to be appropriate. As for the measures cabinet put in place in response to the emergency, I conclude that while most of the measures were appropriate and effective, others fell short. And then he goes on to talk about that in some detail. And then there is the consolidated list of recommendations that are expanded on in volume, whatever it was, two, three, four, five, <laughs> wherever the expanded list of recommendations are. But then he makes his recommendations for how we should proceed in the future. Uh, but there it is, long and short of it, the, the invocation of the Emergencies Act was justified in the, uh, in the learned and esteemed opinion of Commissioner Rouleau. And who could argue with that? Well, as he even points out, reasonable people could very much disagree with him on this ruling. But whatever the case, and as I pointed out in episode 435, yeah, or 434, I should say, it, yeah, in a sense, whatever Rulo ruled didn't really matter. It has no judicial legal teeth to it whatsoever. It's just he can make recommendations for how this might go forward. So what does all of this mean? And what should we take away from this report? Uh, don't take it from James Corbett, Joe Schmo blogger in Japan. Take it from someone who was there and who participated in the proceedings and has uh, a legal background to be able to um, talk about these matters. Uh, in, in that regard, I had the chance earlier today to ask uh, Rob Kittredge, who, as I mentioned earlier, 
was one of the lawyers representing the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms at the inquiry last fall about his reaction to this report. Rob, your reaction to the report and the findings of Justice Rouleau? Well, it's a disappointing result, obviously, and uh, and a particularly, you know, one that, one that kind of hits particularly close to home because I had been, uh, as I guess was probably evident on the, the last time we talked, I'd been fairly optimistic that this was going to actually get us uh, a bit of a win to some degree. Um, and it really didn't. I, I mean, it's really quite surprising to me that uh, I, I think Justice Rouleau was at the same hearings that I was at, and uh, the evidence looked a little different to me. The report is very deferential to government, and uh, and you know, I think it I think it will have some uh, some implications for future protests in Canada, unfortunately. Absolutely. Well, let's look at this uh, finding in a little greater detail. So it seems that uh, Rouleau has ruled that the not only was this justified, but that the entire situation was really brought about by essentially poor policing, and that if uh, there were greater powers given to the police, that they would have been able to have started stopped this protest before it started, essentially. At least that's the way I'm reading some of this language. Um, what do you make of that? Well, I think uh, I think to be fair, uh, he's also saying that the the protest could have been stopped using existing policing powers. I, he does. Um, uh, there are a few places where he walks the opinion back a little bit. One of them is uh, saying that he comes to this conclusion reluctantly. That uh, you know, some another informed, uh, reasonable person could come to a different conclusion about uh, what the you know about whether the invocation of the act was justified, um, and he, in my view, anyway, he blames the uh, the the you know quote unquote emergency, the emergence of the emergency, on policing failures and failures of governance and failures of. Uh, uh, federalism. So I, I think, and this was, you know, this was borne out from the, uh, you know, what I, my experience in the hearings, what I heard in the hearings was that uh, police just had to act. <laughs> and uh, if they had acted and if they had made some different decisions, they could have handled the protest as it was. I mean, at the end of the day, every police force uh, uh, told us that they would have been able to handle the, the, uh, protests in Ottawa with or without the invocation of the Emergencies Act. So I I mean, there is uh, a ten, uh, one of the unfortunate things in the whole framing of the um, of this uh, commission was that the the liberal government uh, sort of took every every opportunity to direct the commission towards looking at things that would bolster its power or uh, bolster its uh uh, other legislative endeavors. So, for example, you know, in an inquiry that's supposed to be all about the government's actions and the, you know, whether the invocation of the act was proper or not, uh, they directed the commissioner to look into the motivations of the protesters and the and the funding and, you know, directing uh, him to look at disinformation and misinformation, which it plays right into a series of uh, legislative actions that the liberals are taking you know, elsewhere in their government. So I, I think, you know, as any government tends to trend to want to do, uh, governments like to build their own power. And uh, and unfortunately, uh, 
we have some recommendations coming out of this that are probably going to do just that. Um, but I, I, unfortunately, I think you're exactly right in that. And speaking of the, the sort of building of the power of government through a commission like this, let's talk about the question of whether or not this has effectively broken the seal on the Emergencies Act, which, of course, has never been invoked, at least the modern form of the Emergencies Act, has not been invoked yet until last year. And now we have the commission coming out and saying that it was ultimately justified. Does this make it more likely that the government will use this in the future? Well, I guess uh, I would say probably, but uh, the we are optimistic. This is not a legally binding uh, process. There's no, you know, real possibility to appeal it, and it's not. Uh, it doesn't set out uh, binding legal findings. It sets out recommendations and findings, you know, in a general sense to uh, uh, to allow Parliament to assess, you know, whether the invocation was appropriate or not. But there are judicial review uh, processes underway in the courts right now. Um, I believe the hearing on the merits uh, for the judicial reviews is at the beginning of April. Um, And we're optimistic that the court in that matter will come to a different conclusion than uh, Justice Rouleau did. And that would be a significant step towards protecting the rights of Canadians to protest. I think one of the things that uh, uh, we sort of, uh, it's easy to sort of overlook have it with so much time having elapsed since the uh, Emergencies Act was even passed, let alone invoked. Obviously, this is the first time it was invoked, but it is the successor to the War Measures Act, which was invoked in World War One, World War Two, and during the October crisis in Quebec. And it uh, the War Measures Act could be invoked in cases of a real or uh, a real or apprehended war or insurrection. So, for example, in the case of the um, October crisis, that was the War Measures Act was invoked on the basis that that was an apprehended insurrection. Like we thought this was a, you know, had the potential to be a takeover of the country. And I think that's, uh, you know, a relatively you know, more reasonable assessment of what was going on in the, during the October crisis, which was actually, you know, involved some serious violence. Um, but in the, in the white paper that that uh, was written when the um, Emergencies Act was enacted, uh, they consider that the emergency, the public order emergency section of the Emergencies Act replaces the apprehended uh, insurrection power under the War Measures Act. So if you take it, a look at the protests in February of last year through that lens, is it really, you know, does it rise to the level of an apprehended insurrection? I mean, there is a test that's uh, that's set out in the Emergencies Act, and that is, um, you know, it's a uh, public order emergency is an emergency that arises from the threat to the from threats to the security of Canada that is so serious as to be a national emergency. Threats to the security of Canada, as we discussed the last time, has the same meaning as it has in the CSIS Act. And uh, the uh, a national emergency is defined elsewhere in the Act as being beyond the capacity of a province to deal with it and uh, cannot be dealt with under uh, uh, any ex- other law of Canada and uh, that seriously threatens the life or health of Canadians. So every step of there's several conditions that have to be met it has to seriously endanger the life and health of canadians it has to be beyond the scope of a province to deal with it uh 
every one of every one of those steps, um, Justice Rouleau gave the government as you know a huge amount of leeway. So what what I think has effectively happened here is that bar for that test has been dropped, you know, so low that uh, it'll be met in almost any case of a significant uh, protest movement. So, for example, um, there's a, uh, like any protest movement these days that would get to, you know, be a large enough protest movement that it would be significant and disruptive enough that a government would even consider looking at the Emergencies Act would, by definition these days, be something that's happening nationally, right? It's not just going to be happening in one province. It's going to be, I mean, we had uh, uh, protests about uh, uh, an oil pipeline that were taking place right before the uh, pandemic began. And uh, there were rail blockades happening in many provinces, uh, in a couple of provinces around, across Canada. And uh, that there were sympathy, you know, uh, blockades by uh, by native groups and by other groups that were acting in solidarity with a group in British Columbia that uh, a tribe in British Columbia that was uh, objecting to a pipeline, um, and so that exceeds the capacity of a province just right there. I mean, it all it all it takes is for the event to be taking place in more than one province, and. And the uh, the that's what Rouleau uh, sort of took uh, exceeds the capacity of a province to deal with uh, as meaning. So it's it really that you can envision a situation where a province might have decided, well, we think there's some validity to this protest movement, and we want to give them the scope to actually protest. We, uh, you know, perhaps a province. Um, you know, might disagree with the actions of the federal government over the last two years <laughs> and uh, and, you know, might actually might decide, well, we, you know, we think that the protest should be allowed to continue or we think there's some validity to it. Or maybe it's just we think that it would be unsafe to crack down on it in in the ways that would be necessary. So we'll let it go on for a little longer and fizzle out at the end of the day. Policing is a provincial responsibility under the Constitution. So uh, it is, under ordinary circumstances, up to the province uh, whether they want to uh, police a, uh, a protest, crack down on a protest or not. But the bar there has been dropped uh, extremely low. And with the reasons given are relatively thin. I uh, I thought there was one more uh, area that I'll, I'll just go to on a technical level and then <laughs> I'll turn it back over to you because I have a tendency to talk too much. Um, but uh, the National Defense Act allows uh, the army to be called in to, uh, you know, to assist with us with civil matters. So there was the the possibility always was there that the National Defense Act could be used to call the army in to help deal with these protests or these border blockades. Um, and in again, in the white paper that was drafted uh, when the Emergencies Act was was put together back in the 80s, uh, the white paper expri explicitly considers that the National Defense Act should be invoked before the Emergencies Act is invoked in the case of a public order emergency. And Justice Rouleau acknowledges that. And I, I, I think it's at two, uh, something like page 237 of volume three. He addresses this. And, uh, you know, again, 
in order to be uh, for a valid declaration of emergency, the situation can't be dealt with under any other law of Canada. And the National Defense Act is a law of Canada. And it explicitly was considered in uh, the white paper in the 80s. So the, the act was drafted with the intent that you would call in the army before you declared an emergency. And, uh, and Justice Rouleau deals with that uh, almost literally by saying just, well, I agree with the, I, I note that the white paper says that the army should be called in before an emergency is declared. Uh, I agree with the government that this is not desirable. And he's, uh, or I guess that's in the opposite order. He says it's not desirable. And, and I note that it was dealt with in the white paper. Much has changed since then. And that's the extent of his consideration of this. Much has changed since then. That's the only reason he gives why the intent of the uh, drafters of the Emergencies Act uh, isn't followed. So, you know, it's very uh, deferential to government, this opinion. And it drops the bar to a point where, you know, it's hard to imagine a disruptive protest movement that wouldn't be, uh, you know, instantly subject to uh, suppression if the government of the day wanted to. Once again, that is Rob Kittredge, the Ontario lawyer who was participating in the inquiry late last year, who I did talk to late last year regarding his participation in that inquiry and whose personal website uh, for his own legal services is at rkip.ca. That's rkip.ca. There's a few important takeaways, I think, from that conversation that I'd I'd like everyone to turn their attention to. The first is as is the title of today's episode and exploration, yes, essentially Canada has criminalized dissent. As Rob notes in that conversation, not only was Commissioner Rulo deferential to government, giving them incredible leeway at every and any opportunity to essentially side with them, oh, well, it, it felt like a national emergency and there was the perception that it, there could be violence, therefore... I find that the threshold has been met. Uh, not only was it he deferential to them in every respect with regards to that, but essentially, it's, as Rob points out, it is almost impossible to imagine any sort of substantial protest movement taking place in Canada that now could not meet the very, very low threshold that Commissioner Rouleau has set here in this in this report anyway. And keep in mind, this report has no legal consequence, no legal teeth, but it is... On the record, this is the inquiry that was launched on the back of this Emergencies Act invocation. And do you not think that the government will use this precedent at any and every opportunity from now until the end of time? Of course they will. Now, any protest movement that is deemed of sufficient size and scope to actually perhaps make a difference to anything will be will be ruled as illegal, essentially, and and up to and including the invocation of the Emergencies Act to deal with it. So, yes, I I hate to inform you, my dear Canadian brethren and sisters, but I'm afraid you are now living essentially in a police state. It's just that occasionally it will put on the hat of, oh, don't worry, we're just government. It's just rule of law. And then the, the mask will come off and, oop, look at these emergency powers. Commissioner Rouleau said. So I think that is... Uh, genuinely important. I genuinely hope that people are paying attention to this, not just in Canada, but around the world, because you better believe that certainly the Five Eyes uh, are very much looking forward to implementing versions of this in their own countries. Canada is just a, a test rollout for this, and other 
countries besides are licking their chops at the potential that has just been demonstrated. A free, liberal, democratic, Western society can absolutely crack down on protest anytime it wants, hold a little inquiry whitewash, and roll along its merry way. The second part that, uh, of that conversation that I want you to, uh, to dwell on is the idea that, as with so many of these events, the spectacular failure to prevent this emergency will be used as a gigantic shot in the arm to give more power to the very people who failed in their duty before, exactly as the failure of the intelligence community on 9-11, well, now we need to consolidate, give them more power, more funding, tear down any, any obstacles that had previously been in their way, build them up into a homeland security juggernaut. Well, now you better believe that well, what is Commissioner Rulo recommending? Well, some things that will give more power to the very people who so signally failed to protect Canadians from honking horns and bouncy castles. For example, recommendation one in the consolidated list of recommendations at the end of volume one notes that in conjunction with provincial, indigenous, and territorial governments, uh, the federal government of Canada, uh, police and intelligence agencies, the Canadian Association of Police Chiefs, and other stakeholders should develop or enhance protocols on information sharing, intelligence gathering, and distribution. Yes, of course. Tear down those walls, make sure that these intelligence organs of various sorts are talking to each other more and sharing more information, collecting more. Uh, but don't worry, he does have some language in there about protecting civil liberties while you do so. So... Don't worry, he's he's definitely... Rulo has covered his tracks in this. So I said to protect civil liberties. Uh, recommendation 2. The stakeholders identified in Recommendation 1, i.e. the federal government, the indigenous and territorial and provincial governments, the police and intelligence agencies, blah, 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 should consider the creation of a single national intelligence coordinator for major events of a national or interprovincial or interterritorial dimension. So now in the event of any declared or perceived or apprehended or uh, maybe it's right around the corner, I'm telling you, threat to national security of any sort or anything that goes across provincial borders, now we need a national coordinator of information, which will be uh, taking all of this information in various forms. So what could go wrong with that? Uh, recommendation 15, for example, the RCMP should consider lending an initiative, leading an initiative, working with other police agencies for police services across the country to adopt a single command and control model with shared nomenclature to facilitate integrated operations in appropriate situations. How dare the municipal police in Calgary not be using the same nomenclature as the provincial police in uh, Newfoundland. I mean, how dare you have your own structures in different places? No, no, no. No, we need to make sure that everything is a national command and control structure and it's all coordinated and maybe a single director at the top. And why can't we just make it more, I don't know, military? Huh? You see the direction in which these recommendations are trending, and that's not by accident. And I don't think it's even by some sort of malicious uh, intent on Commissioner Rulo's part. It is simply the nature of the beast when it comes to centralization of power. Look, the, the, this problem arose. What could we possibly do about it? Oh, I know. We'll need a bigger hammer to nail down that um, nail. To hammer down that nail. So anyway, I think we can definitely see, again... Rulo's recommendations has no legal authority whatsoever. This isn't anything that has to be implemented in any way, but it is now there out on the table, and you better believe that those 
who will benefit from the further centralization of power and control will use this as an opportunity to do exactly that. And the third thing that I want to take uh, away from that conversation with Rob Kittredge is something that Rob raised that's a very important point where he talked about the mandate that Rouleau was given uh, for the commission itself. Uh, of course, there's the language in the Emergencies Act about the nature of the inquiry that is to take place, but Rouleau was given a specific mandate um, in the course of his work when the commission was set up. And he, at several points in the report, does refer back to that and say, well, some people would like me to opine on this, some people would like me to rule on this, but my mandate said blah, blah, blah. And as Rob correctly points out, one of those things that Rouleau was directed to take a look at was the problem of misinformation and disinformation on social media and how that exacerbated the problem. And of course, what does that mean other than people are saying things about the government that we don't like? Rouleau, you better talk about that and make sure that you raise the alarm about this horrible, horrible freedom of speech that's going on and what we can do about it. So, of course, he does address that in this report, talking about the scourge of misinformation and disinformation and people saying bad things about vaccines online and other other such harmful lies. Um, so I hope that this concept is not new to my listeners, because you will remember it. Uh, Tim Ball pointed it out to us many years ago. The most effective way to control a commission of inquiry of any sort is to control the mandate, control the terms of reference. Simply define, this is the problem, and this is the way you're going to look at it, and this is the type of report you'll produce, and then you can let it go. It doesn't have to be micromanaged to the nth degree. You don't have to have someone literally standing over Rouleau's shoulder as he's writing the report, because... It's already in the terms of reference. It's already in the mandate. It's already there in the scope. So I guess that raises the question, what what were the terms of reference that Rula was working from? What, what was his mandate? Some will want my report <clears throat> to make findings or conclusions about COVID itself or the correctness of how government responded to it. Those people may be disappointed. My mandate is not about the pandemic or public health policy. Those are important topics, but not ones with which I have been tasked. So there you go. Rulo himself says, whatever task has been assigned to me, that does not include uh, coming to any conclusion about COVID itself or the crisis, the, the scandemic. And it certainly doesn't have anything to do with opining on the correctness of the government's response to the scandemic. So anything, any thought that this would have anything to do with that, of course, completely out the window. And again, that raises the question, then what was the actual task of this commission? What was it really set out to do? Well, he does answer that in section two of volume one of the report, where he talks about the formation of the commission. He says, on April 25th, 2022, the governor in council appointed me to conduct an inquiry into the 2022 public order emergency. I was given two different mandates to fulfill. The first was found in the Emergencies Act itself, which requires the inquiry to examine the circumstances that led to the declaration being issued and the measures taken for dealing with the emergency. This mandate from Parliament is one of public accountability. The public is entitled to know why the government proclaimed an emergency and whether the actions that it took were appropriate. My second mandate is contained in the order in council appointing me. In addition to examining the circumstances that led to the proclamation of the public order emergency, it directs me to examine the following. 
the evolution, goals, leadership, and organization of the convoy movement and border protests, as well as the participants, the impact of domestic and foreign funding, including crowdsourcing platforms, the impact, role, and sources of misinformation and disinformation, including the use of social media, the economic and other impacts of the blockades, and the efforts of police and other responders prior to and after the declaration. Very interesting, isn't it? In fact, as he goes on in the very next paragraph to note, all this was all supposed to be in the context of those issues relevant to the circumstances of the declaration and the measures taken. So he interprets this as being, in other words, while these topics are important and worthy of attention, it was the mandate given to me by Parliament that drove the Commission's work. And the mandate from Parliament, again, is one of public accountability, right? This, uh, and examine the circumstances that led to the declaration. But so what are these other things that are being thrown on top and that he is obviously including here and he obviously does make part of the report. It is part of what he set out to do to look at the evolution, goals, leadership and organization of the convoy and its participants, to look at the impact of domestic and foreign funding and the role of crowdsourcing platforms, the, the impact and role and sources of misinformation and disinformation, including the use of social media. Wow, it's weird. It's almost like the government is commissioning this commission of inquiry to get to the bottom of what happened and how we could do it better to basically look at these naughty protesters and all the bad things that they, they're doing and the ways they're talking to each other so that we can better crack down on them in the future. That's really remarkable, actually, if you stop and think about it. And the fact that that is actually part of this report is, I think, condemning enough of the inquiry and its efforts. But actually, it's interesting to find out what Rouleau himself saw, in his own words, as being the most important task of the commission. On previous occasions, I've said that this commission's task is first and foremost a tool to be a tool of accountability and to foster public confidence. Ah, well, there it is. I get it now. Yes, of course. Rouleau saw that the first and foremost task of this commission of inquiry was to foster public confidence in the Emergencies Act, in the government, in the institutions that will protect them. Don't worry, guys. Yeah, sometimes we have to suspend any pretense of charter of rights and freedoms and all of those things, but we only do so when it's absolutely necessary. And even when we do so, we'll really think hard about what we did and come to the conclusion that it was the right thing to do. Fostering public confidence. And once again, as in so many parts of this agenda, we find that this is a tacit admission that the most important thing for the powers that shouldn't be, the people who seek to rule over you, is to have your acquiescence, your participation in this process. They want to foster public confidence to the extent that they will put on this grand theatrical exercise in commission cover-up in order to placate you, at the very least, to make you sort of roll over and go, well... Uh, the commission's over and they've cleared the government. I guess that's it. What can we do? At the very least, they're trying to engender a sense of powerlessness in you, hopelessness, because, oh, they've made their ruling and now things will go on. And they want you to feel that. That is precisely what Rouleau is admitting there, that this is an exercise in public relations, essentially, for the government. And he obviously displayed that in his ruling. 
So keep this in mind. You are the one with the actual power to determine the real course of future events. They are doing this to placate you because the thing that they fear most is exactly this type of widespread, popular uprising of people realizing, hey, we don't like what's going on and we're the people of Canada. We get some sh some say in determining what happens in this country, don't we? Oh no, we don't. Oh no, if you if you think that will happen, they'll just invoke the Emergencies Act. They'll they'll do anything they have to. They'll they'll freeze your bank accounts. They'll throw you in jail. Whatever they have to do to get you to shut up when you are not engaged in the right kind of political protest. You know, the kind where we can all we can all agree this protest is good, but that protest, uh-oh, you're a criminal. No. No one was afraid of honking horns and bouncy castles as a threat to national security. That is not why the Emergencies Act was invoked. The thing that they really fear is widespread public opinion, especially when it does not go in their favor. Favor, And that is something that they will do anything to suppress by whatever means necessary, whether the threat of force and violence, debanking, or through some sort of public relations exercise in a commission of cover-up. So keep this in mind. Once again, this points to the fact that your mind, your beliefs are exceptionally important in this and your decision ultimately to accept this, roll over, oh well, didn't work, better not try that again. We saw what happened. We don't want that to happen again. Or whether people continue to resist and protest and do not accept these types of measures. Do not accept the precedent that was just set. That is our decision. Yes, as Rob Kittredge alluded to in our conversation, there will be a judicial review, one with actual judicial legal teeth to it uh, of the government's actions, and that will be taking place in April. So there presumably will be more to come on this subject from the legal front. But maybe we shouldn't just hold our breath and wait for the judges to wisely rule that the government mostly acted nor as it should. No, that is not the point. The point is whether or not we have been placated by this exercise of cover-up. So that is my question, essentially, not only to my Canadian brothers and sisters, but to everyone around the world. Has this been successful? Are, are you... Are you at least assured now that there's nothing can be done and no protest is worth it? The Freedom Convoy was a big flop. Because ultimately it's up to you. Having said all of that, there will be a ton of show notes, references, links for you to start exploring this material at your leisure at CorbettReport.com slash Canada. I suggest you do check out these links, read the report for yourself, or at least sections thereof. Do not take my interpretation or anyone else's interpretation of this, including the Canadian government's, at face value. Do your own research, and I think there will be more to say on this topic. As I say, I will be writing a newsletter this weekend on the very topic of rule of law and the implications of this report. But that's going to do it for today. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you for joining me for this edition of The Corbett Report and asking you to join me again in the very near future. We had nearly lost our
Shines into the dark 